Hey, it's me just dropping into this episode to remind you that you can still sign up for our virtual trivia night over at any of the, any of our social media platforms, really, um, or in the show notes here. And this is going to be supporting the work that um, myself and the rest of the canine conservationist team is doing to donate our time and expertise to help train brand new handlers for Action for Cheetahs in Kenya. We're going to be spending about six weeks each donating our time in Kenya, and we are hoping to fundraise to cover the stipends for the team while we uh, provide those services. So as as you may remember, Action for Cheetahs in Kenya has three highly trained conservation detection dogs, but has just hired new handlers, green handlers. And it is our job to help get those handlers up and running so that they can get back to the very important work of studying these endangered big cats. So check those out over at any of the links, <laughs> any of the places that you find our links, and let's get to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today we're talking about mistakes, errors, and failure, both in training and in the field. Um, how do we get our dogs used to errors? Is that needed? What happens when a mistake happens in the field? And this topic was suggested by one of our patrons over on Patreon. If you aren't a member yet, it's three bucks a month and you get a ton of great perks, which we talk about every episode during those ad breaks that you probably skip through. I'm so excited to talk about this, but before we get to it, we're going to dive into our science highlight. This week, we're talking about the paper, You Are Not My Handler, Impact on Changing Handlers on Dogs' Behavior and Dete Detection Performance, which was published in Animals by LaToya Jameson, Greg Baxter, and Peter Murray. The question that they were trying to answer is, how does a dog's behavior and detection performance compare with a familiar versus an unfamiliar handler? And what they found is that dogs performed with significantly higher accuracy scores when handled by their familiar handler. The dogs also spent more time searching, less time distracted, and exhibited fewer stress-related behaviors when they were paired with the familiar handler. Sensitivity also improved throughout the testing sessions with the familiar handler, but did not improve throughout testing sessions with the unfamiliar handler. Three of the nine dogs refused to work at all for the unfamiliar handler. There are a couple additional areas for research, as always, um, such as how long would it take for a new dog to adjust to a new handler? What are some characteristics of dogs that can help them adjust more quickly to new handlers? This is important for professional working dogs who are part of a large organization and may be transferred between multiple handlers, especially within a restricted transition period. Of course, there are always limitations to scientific studies, and in this one, we have to keep an eye on the fact that there was a small sample size due to extended time commitments and resources needed to kennel and train the dogs for the studies. The professional, these dogs were not professional working dogs in the study, although the authors expect a change of handlers to similarly impact a professional detection dog's behavior and performance. Oh, of course, we can't say for sure. Sure. All right, so let's talk about mistakes, errors, failure, all that um, icky, scary stuff. The first thing we're going to say here is that everything is just data, it's just information. Even if a project completely fails or a training exercise totally blows up in your face, it's information. Now we have all sorts of interesting questions to dig into. Was it the search conditions, the target odor, the study design, the time of year, the training sample quality, a dog project fit? Those are all questions if, say, an entire project really didn't go well. Um, if you're looking at 
a specific training situation or something more minor that's happened in the field? Or is it a problem with criteria? Do you need to split your training more? Um, was it your timing for reinforcement or cues or something like that? Is the dog stressed or exhausted? Did the handler accidentally interfere and throw the dog off? All sorts of different hypotheses that we can start looking at and then start digging into solutions. And that brings us to the concept of applied behavior analysis. This isn't always the answer to all training issues, but it's a great place to start. So there are the ABCs of applied behavior analysis, which are antecedent behavior and consequence. If you're seeing a behavior in your dog that you consider an error, there's likely an antecedent that's cueing your, your dog to perform that behavior, or a consequence that's reinforcing the behavior somehow, and likely both. For example, let's say that your dog often leaves searching to snack on deer poop. The consequence here is clear. She gets rewarded for this behavior by the delicious taste of deer poo. Since we can't actually make deer poo less tasty um, realistically or easily or consistently, we probably need to focus on the antecedent rather than the consequence. Is the search too hard, which is causing the dog to start searching for other reinforcement? Is there simply too much tasty deer poo in the area for, um, for this particular dog and we need to change the search area entirely? Um, do we need to consider a muzzle, which is more of a management tool to help prevent the dog from eating? In the case of scavenging, I'm likely to focus on the antecedent. We need to figure out how to build the dog's enthusiasm and endurance back up and really get them refocused on, on the search so that exhaustion and boredom and frustration don't factor in so much to getting the dog to search for other reinforcement. So we can contrast that with a dog who hesitates on the alert or skips it entirely. Um, the dog might show a minor change of behavior but isn't actually performing that final indication, that final trained response at the target owner. The antecedent here is that the dog encounters the target odor and the goal behavior is an alert, but what we're actually getting is a weak change of behavior. The consequence maintaining this behavior, this unwanted behavior, is probably that the dog gets to continue searching and being free in the environment. Um, in our past episode with Ken Ramirez, which we're linked to in the show notes, I believe he talks about um, a case where there was a search and rescue dog that started showing um, his, his alert was degrading and what they figured out is that every time he alerted, he found the person training was over. He had to go back to the car. He had to go back to his normal life and searching was really reinforcing. So what they actually had to do is start using what we call the pre-MAC principle so that the alert was actually reinforced by getting to continue searching. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll try to dig that up and link to it. If it wasn't that podcast episode, I'll find it somewhere else. I know he's talked about it publicly before. Um, so again, the consequence of maintaining our unwanted behavior in this case is that the dog is continuing to search and being free in the environment. So searching is actually the reward itself for an unwanted behavior. Woo, what a tricky question. In this case, what we can do is focus in on that consequence. We need to build value for sourcing order and performing the alert, which likely means we need to simplify the search, which is interfering with the antecedents a little bit, and then reassess our reinforcement protocols, which is not just the reinforcement offered, so not just the type of treat or the type of toy, but how we're actually delivering it. And this is especially important with toy play, because depending on how we're playing with our dog, we could be building all sorts of icky feelings and frustration into what we think is a reward, um, which can really break down our alert behaviors that can start bleeding forward. And then again, we're starting to build, or we're continuing to build a stronger reinforcement history for that desired behavior before we layer in distractions and duration back into the search. So again, we need to start thinking about if the dog is not alerting, 
and continuing to search, we need to figure out how to make the reward for the alert, the well, and also sourcing that odor fully, more salient um, and more powerful so that the dog is more inclined to actually perform the desired behavior. There are so many ways to frame the concept of failure, errors, and mistake, and as much as possible, I really strive to set my dogs up in training for low frustration learning. I feel like I don't know quite enough about the <laughs> technical definitions within the dog training world to say that I strive for errorless learning, although um, I think I do. Um, so rather than teaching my dogs to deal with failure, which is one of the original questions that came up for this episode, I... I don't. I don't teach my dogs to deal with failure necessarily. I focus on building up their resilience, their enthusiasm, their endurance, and their problem-solving skills consciously through training. So here's an example. When I'm introducing a target odor, I don't teach my dogs that alerting <laughs> to an off-target um, tin is a failure. I don't consciously introduce something like that so that they can get a no reward marker or get a correction or even just kind of not get rewarded. Rather, I start with a single tin that has a target odor in it. I click, treat, I click, I treat, I click, I treat. We're building up that reinforcement when there's really nothing else in the environment to tempt the dog or anything else that would create an error. And then I add a second tin, but it's a little bit further away. So if the target tin is right in front of me and my dog is kind of standing on the other side of that target tin, I'm gonna add a blank tin a little bit off to my right. So it's not right there. The dog may, um, go investigate it, but it's not very likely because they've just been getting paid over and over and over again for paying attention to the tin that's right in front of us. I continue doing that and then over time I kind of move that off-target tin closer and closer and closer. Eventually, yes, the dog is likely to investigate it, but they're very quick to go back to that target odor. And we continue layering in those difficulties and those distractions really, really consciously throughout the target odor process. Within just a couple sessions, Niffler was selecting bats from several tins, one of which contained the same treats that I was using to reward him with. And this is, again, not to say that he never ever sniffed the wrong tin or didn't nose at the treat tin or anything like that, but I did my very best as a trainer to layer in the distractions consciously and to keep the task incredibly clear. Um, I didn't correct him verbally or physically. Um, I didn't give him no reward marker. Um, and, you know, errors were very fleeting when they did happen. I'm keeping a really close eye on frustration, especially when you're working with these really high-drive dogs. When you select ultra-high-drive dogs for a job, frustration is never far away. These dogs care so much about their rewards, so much about their reinforcement, that it is very easy to start layering in icky feelings of frustration um, because the dogs are anticipating something that they care so much about. Um, so because our dogs, when we select these really ultra-high dry, dry, drive dogs, they're desperate for their reinforcer, that can create problematic um, behaviors like um, aggressing towards the target or even towards the handler. The toy play can start disintegrating. Um, we can get off-target alerts because the dog is just desperate for their reinforcer and they're really trying to do anything in order to get the ball. Um, and this is why clean training is so, so, so important. Um, we might have to have a whole other episode on frustration, but again, clean mechanics and clear training is just so important, especially with these high drive dogs. Yes, they're easy to motivate, but again, because they care so much about their reinforcers, it's also really easy to, for lack of a better phrase, piss them off if they think they 
quote unquote, and I, I know I'm anthropomorphizing here, but if your dog thinks that he deserves a ball for a behavior that he just performed and then you fail to pr- produce that ball, there's a good chance if you've got a mal or a healer, that dog might bite you. <laughs> um, and it's not, I mean, you know, a bite is a bite, but it's frustration that we've produced through training. And again, by selecting these ultra high do- drive dogs, if we've got a border collie like I do, yeah, you might get bitten, but you're more likely to see spinning or barking. Other sorts of unwanted behaviors. Our labs may start blowing us off and just searching on their own. Our spaniels might do the same thing. Um, there is plenty. I've seen plenty of labs that will spin and bark and spin and bark. And I've seen plenty of border collies that'll bite you. Um, so it depends. But anyway, frustration. And of course, again, we can't completely cut frustration and errors out of real life, but our training plans don't need to intentionally introduce adversity. Instead, our training plans should focus on building the dog's skills so that the dog has the tools and confidence to deal with long, hard searches rather, again, than introducing failure and correcting the dog for it using a no reward marker or ignoring failure um, so that the dog kind of reassesses. Again, it's going to happen, but we're not necessarily, we don't have to consciously layer that in. So let's talk about a couple other types of errors or mistakes. In training, sometimes the dog doesn't find the target. Um, you're, you've set up a training hide, you know where it is, you know how many there are, and you know your dog missed it. Um, video is really, really helpful for this particular error because the next question is whether or not the dog actually caught the odor at all. In other words, is this a problem where the dog completely missed the odor or that the dog couldn't or wouldn't, regardless, didn't source the odor completely? If the odor, if if the issue is that the dog didn't catch the odor, I call that a clean miss. Take note and make a plan. You need to handle the dog so that they've got a good chance of hitting the odor based on what you know about airflow, odor dynamics, the conditions at hand. In Niffler's case, I've also had to consciously teach him to slow down and search thoroughly because he likes to go fast. There are times where he's got a clean miss, and I am very confident based on what's happening with the wind um, that he did move through the odor cone, but he was just sprinting at 137 miles an hour, so um, we we had to do quite a few searches on leash. I've also really tried working with him on um, kind of some more challenging sourcing problems where he really has to slow down and use his brain to problem solve a little bit more. Um, If it is a sourcing issue so that in video you are seeing a change in behavior from the dog, maybe you see a a nose flick, um, the tail set changes, the dog stutters a little bit or brackets a little bit but then doesn't actually source the odor and alert to the odor, A, go back to our episode with Stacey Barnett talking about sourcing, and B, Now we've got some more problem solving to consider again. Did the handler move on too fast and pull the dog off odor? I've done this plenty of times to Barley where I missed his change of behavior because I was a green handler and I just kept walking because I had my transect and he eventually came and followed me. Um, Did the dog show a change of behavior but then move on without giving a final response? or did the dog attempt to source the odor and then get stumped by lofting an elevated hide and an accessible hide? Whatever. Your training plan is going to be different based on which of those scenarios describes your situation. And of course, there could be other variations on this theme. Hey, everyone. Just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode. 
but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones can participate fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have it beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nose work competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much. And let's get back to the episode. Challenging searches often really scare people because people are worried about failure. Blind searches, blank searches, long searches can make handlers' palms sweat, even really experienced handlers. Um, and that's okay. We need to get used to searches that are more like an operational search, which means you don't know where the hides are. You don't know how many there are. <laughs> there may be none. Um, and you and the dog need to work for a long time. While we never want to demotiv demotivate the dog or the handler, embracing challenge in a safe and progressive way is imperative for your success long-term in this field. And honestly, probably even in the short term. Now, of course, there are ways that things can go truly wrong in the field or in training. I've talked on this show before about times that Barley alerted to blank patches of dirt or Niffler chased a jackrabbit. When Barley was first learning the scent of bat carcasses back in spring 2021, he once ate the bat wing that I was training him to find. Not good. Um, on more minor scales, both of my dogs have tried to return to a hide that they've already found. They've ranged too far. They've started sniffing after critters rather than getting to work. Most of these minor mistakes can be addressed through teaching the dog specific skills to help direct them in the field and returning to foundational search skills or both. Again, it's all information. These errors, big and small, point towards new things to focus on for training. When we do have a big mistake in the field, safety is always the first concern. Whether it's the dog investigating a snake, a handler getting lost, or a predator getting too close for comfort, now is not the time to think about your training plan. Act to keep or get you and your dog safe. Call your dog to you. Use your emergency stop or down cue. Um... <laughs> figure out what's going on with your gps again get yourself safe and stay safe that is your first job if there is a big um error or mistake or catastrophe in the field then if you're really stressed out angry afraid or just really shake it up take a break from surveying or even consider ending the survey early if you can 
The first time I encountered a rattlesnake in the field, Barley performed his emergency stop and emergency down beautifully. The snake was actually in between him and me. But I had to take a couple minutes afterwards to breathe and get my heart rate back down before we were ready to search again. Um, and luckily, we were actually like a couple hundred meters from the truck at that point. And we ended our search after that because clearly the snakes were starting to come out and be active as, the, um, as our search area heated up and it was not worth um, going out to do more. And then when Niffler took off after that rabbit, I've said it before, I lost my temper. I had to take some time to relax because I was too angry with him to be a good handler and continue the search. So first safety, second calm down, and then third, we can start making a training plan to address the issue at hand. So, you know, with Niffler, um, we started with management, he was searching on leash, and then second, we've done a ton of work on not just recalling off of wildlife, but also ignoring wildlife by default. Um, with Barley and the snake, it wasn't so much a training issue. He performed his trained behavior beautifully. It was that, um, you know, we needed to do a better job the next day of keeping an eye on when temperatures were expected to hit the, uh, the threshold at which snakes came out in that particular area. So again, safety, calm down, and then make a plan. But don't, don't worry about that training plan until you and your dog are safe and calm. It also should be clear by now that just about any error on the dog's part is actually a hole in the training um, for that particular dog. Each dog is an individual based on its learning, its environment, its genetics, and itself, um, which you know uh, you may recognize as the legs model, thanks to Kim Brophy. And therefore, all of our dogs need something different to succeed long-term in this career. I do not mean to suggest that with enough training, any dog can succeed in this field. That's just not true. Um, I also want to say that while it's the handler's responsibility to address concerns that come up with the dog, I don't want you to feel guilt or shame for mistakes that happen in training or in the field. We're all learning all the time and perfection isn't attainable. I am saying this for myself as much as for you. So again, any errors are probably a hole in the training. Not necessarily a hole that you need to blame yourself for because each dog is an individual and we're always learning and adapting and adjusting to the dog and what they're showing us at that time. It's information. Okay, all that said, there's a final category of errors or mistakes that we're going to cover in this episode, which is just plain old handler error. Sometimes handler error forces a dog error, but sometimes the handler just messes up to or does something that the dog thinks is kind of weird and the dog actually performs its behavior appropriately, although that doesn't mean that the handler error um, wasn't a big deal. So here's kind of two examples to clear that up because I know it's a little bit of a fine distinction here. When Barley ate that bat wing, which I mentioned earlier in this episode, what actually happened was that he alerted to the bat wing. I ignored his alert and told him to keep searching because I misremembered where the bat wing was. I, in my head, thought that it was at a different bush um, in our search area and I messed up and what I should have done is I should have when my dog alerted gone up checked what he was alerting at and you know confirmed or denied what it was that he found um, big old mistake he ate the bat <laughs> um, whoops you know it's it was a mistake on Barley's part sure to eat the bat you know we can I guess we can give him a little bit of blame for that but it was actually my behavior that caused him to do that which is really important to remember especially if you are someone who uses corrections and training I don't think it would have been fair to give Barley a correction for something that he did because I made such a big mistake 
So contrast that with one of the many times that I've been just slow to confirm my dog's alert. Perhaps they alert at a great distance away from me. Perhaps I <laughs> was watching a pronghorn antelope that seemed a little bit too close and then look up and realize that my dog has alerted. I don't know how long they've been doing it. Um, or I was looking at my GPS or tying my shoe or whatever it was. Or even times where I've felt skipped, skeptical of Niffler's alerts and I've taken a really long time to find a tuft of bat fur or a fragment of a wing. Provided that I appropriately taught my dogs their jobs, which is a patient, steady, and an insistent alert at their target odor, both of my dogs can handle these delays in the field. And the difference between these two situations is kind of twofold how I see it. So in one situation, my error was larger and Barley wasn't trained to respond to it appropriately. And in the other situation, I have adequately and actively prepared my dogs for these dumb handler mistakes. So as you're training your dog to prepare for getting into the field, think about the mistakes you may make or even the things that your dog might find frustrating and then actively teach the appropriate response to your dog. In early training, you will be able to mark and reward your dog the second she finds that target odor. But over time, it's important to start actively training. I know I keep saying that, actively training your dog to hold a patient alert while you confirm the find, enter the GPS data, or whatever else may need to happen. It's also important to actively teach your dog a cue that means, hey, you found that one already, let's move on. As well as a, hey, not that one, we're moving on. Sorry, you're not getting rewarded for this one. <laughs> um, and you know, all sorts of other trained cues that'll help you and your dog work cohesively together in a field. For Barley and Niffler, I, I just say, you found that one, let's go. Um, if they try to return to a target that they've already found, and if they make an alert that for whatever reason I can't confirm or I can't reward, I will, um, I have taught both of my dogs a kind of a procedure where I pull them away from the scent, give them some water, kind of a reset, and then just tell them to search again. I have actively taught them both of those things. We can talk about how we did those skills. Maybe that'll be something we do over in Patreon. Um, but again, if you're finding that you were too slow to confirm your dog's alerts or not trusting your dog's alerts, it's time to take a step back in training and build up those foundations or the specific skills that I've just mentioned. So to recap, mistakes are information. We can use the ABCs of behavior change to try to get to the root of what's happening with specific errors, especially if we have video. More importantly, hammering the foundations hard and intentionally introducing distraction, duration of a search, and specific search skills will set you and your dog up for success um, and to handle mistakes and errors well as a team because, again, newsflash, they're going to happen. If there is a big whoops in the field, focus on safety first, emotional recovery second, and creating a game plan to remedy the error third. Most dog errors come down to either a long-term training deficit or a real-time handler error or both. So what are your thoughts on this? errors, mistakes, failure? Comment wherever you find this post on social media and let's start a conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. If you are interested in submitting your own questions and topics for us to discuss on this podcast, hop on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash canineconservationists. For three bucks a month, you can join us for all sorts of cool video calls and, of course, to submit questions. Um, I'm really excited to have you on over there. As always, you can find show notes, donate to Canine Conservationists, and join our Patreon at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. <laughs>